Welcome everyone back to the broadcast. We're still doing this thing. Yeah, I said it. <laughs> I'm David Woods, Bruin Report Online, UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network, and I'm joined by Tracy Pearson. It's the day after the 2019 signing day. Uh, not a good day. Not a great, not a great We're UCLA still here, day. Dave. We we're are. We're still here, just like I said. We're always going to be here, Bruin fans. We're always, we're always going to be here, even through what we were just talking off air, and we decided to bring it on air. This might be the driest period of UCLA athletics I've ever experienced. What do you consider like a a period, like a few months? You mean? I think kind of. I think in- you could probably extend it up to like a, a a year, but I think right now, like specifically, the last like few months really hits it because. It's two things. One, the the football went three and nine, which is just that's almost unprecedentedly bad. Like they don't. Whenever UCLA is bad, it's what we really mean by that is they're mediocre. They're usually going like five and seven and firing coaches or whatever. They went three and nine in the first year of a coach. Um, they then recruited uh, like the one thing UCLA always does well which is, you know, recruit well, to the point where I've taken it as a given over time and have basically been like, whatever, UCLA always recruit well. The, the key is the coach. Well, they didn't. They they recruited like Minnesota. And then the basketball team is in this area where, I, like, I don't have, I, I and I think I, I speak for many fans maybe here, is I don't have a rooting interest right now. And I, and that that's, that's, I don't I, I don't care if they win or lose because previous in the past like I I was fine being invested in UCLA basketball on the level of oh I, I hope they lose so the coach will be fired I, I'm not even there because it doesn't matter it's an interim coach and they've already fired the coach so and they're still very bad so yeah super dry period of UCLA sports so it says a lot about UCLA fans that there are still. All these guys who are still on our forum, still there. I mean, I, and I'm not, that sounds kind of snarky, but I'm being honest. I mean, people are writing this out, you it's know? Right. And I mean, I wrote that story last week that um, it could be the worst, the worst uh, academic year for, you know, for football and basketball combined since uh, 1941 if if the basketball team ends up with a losing record and they're now what 12 and 11 right they end up and i could see them now spiral i mean you could absolutely see them spiral now just oh yeah they kind of give up a lot of them think i'm done with this and you know it just it just there isn't a better word than spiral (laughs) and yeah the worst in 78 years I tried to find some hi- historic facts of like 19, early 1941, late 1940. And it, it was just, it, it, it was just a different existence back then. Yeah. John Wooden was coaching at North Central High. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. It, it was a different world, uh, an entirely different world. Um, and now we're, we're living in its, uh, in its equal, um, and you know the one the one thing I want to say, Dave, and you touched on it. Three and nine really, really infects everything. It's just you know, there's kind of generally not a good feeling probably around the pro the football program, and it's just be it's because of three and nine winning winning solves everything. You know, if if Alabama went suddenly went five and seven. All of its warts, everything you know, horrible about Saban, everything would come out. Just when you win, it it you know everything's good. And when you go three and nine, it just it's so demoralizing for the fans, the donors, the players. You know, the players, God bless them, are out there working out every day and you know running through a tough off season program. With that three and nine on them. And, you know, obviously they're supposed to be moving on, you know, next play kind of attitude. But it still affects them, I think, mentally. So that three and nine affects so much. And, and you know, I have a second part to that thing I wrote, I released today and it's coming out tomorrow. 
And, you know, it, it touches on a, a, a few more, a few more things like the effect of so much of what three and nine can do. And it really does change so much. You know, it changes so much of the outlook for the program. It changes the, the window of opportunity to turn the program around. It, it, it's, that's the key thing. And it's hard to really, really recover from that. You know, there's an asterisk on the basketball season, but there is an asterisk on the football season. And you kind of felt like Chip Kelly was using last season as kind of just, I don't, I don't want to say he tanked it. I, I, no one would intentionally do that. And I know Chip Kelly wouldn't, but kind of an exhibition season, you could say. Yeah, I, I, I'll go with my, my analysis of last season is it ended fine. I thought the final month of the season, they clearly had shown a lot of improvement and they looked like a team that was suddenly, okay, yeah, they grew into a real team and he proved he can, he proved he still has it, I think, from a coaching perspective at the end of the year. It, I will go to my grave thinking that it didn't need to be as bad as it was. Like, it didn't need to be three and nine. Like, you probably could have gone five and seven. Um, they did a lot of kind of vanilla install and a lot of just, what are we really trying to do at the beginning of the year? But whatever, it ended the way it ended. Um, And and, and I see them, I see Chip thinking long-term for the program. That's He always has the bigger perspective on it. I get that. But I think there was a, they really underestimated the effect of what like such, you know, they didn't set out to go three and nine, but I don't think he wanted to set the tone. He wanted to set the culture but you still got to win because at, at some level, because if you just burn it all down, where you go is, is, pretty, is pretty dark. And I think they underestimated what a potential three and nine season could do. Yeah, and, there, and it's, it's, it, it truly is unprecedented or nearly unprecedented in modern UCLA history. Um, the... Uh, the only see, the the most recent season with a lower lower winning percentage than this one was 1971. That was Pepper Rogers' first year. Since that year, they've won fewer than four games now, just twice: once in 1989 and once this year. Let so, me ask you this, Dave. When I see when I hear 1971, because you know I'm I'm a fairly you know older person than you. In my mind, it's so weird when you get old. You hear a year, and you don't think it was that long ago. But to you, does 1971, how old are you now, 33? Yes. Does 1971 sound like a really long time ago for you? Not really long, okay. um, but it does. It, it, I think it's um, any year since I've been alive seems recent to me, though. Like 1986, okay. I'm like, oh, I, I wasn't around. But, yeah, that seems like it was just, you know. And like the mid '90s, if you ask me today, and I wasn't really thinking about it, and you asked me when 1995 was, I'd say, "Oh, it was like 10 years ago." Exactly. That's exactly. That's what I think. And if you say like 1993, you yeah. think, "Wow, that wasn't that long ago." Yeah, I'm like, "Oh, that Jurassic Park came 26, out." Yeah, I saw it with my dad. It was great. <laughs> 26 years ago. That's that's mind blowing to me. Yeah. Exactly. So and, so and, yeah. 1971, Dave. Yeah. That was that was. What? 48 years ago. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where we are. We're, we're talking about something that was, I mean, basically half a century ago. Um, and that was the last time UCLA had this low of a winning percentage or, or lower winning percentage. And they've only lost, they've only won uh, fewer than four games one other time since then. So it is kind of uncharted territory. Um, and recruiting off of that, you know, I think we both were thinking, oh, it'll, they'll take a hit because of it, but it's the first year for a head coach. Um, you know, there's always that boost, and you're not really recruiting on your performance. You're recruiting on the potential and the the, the future. But maybe it is a different deal um, when you're trying to sell potential off of what truly was a moribund first season. Well, when you're when you just when you get hired. When Chip Kelly just get hired, when Jim Mora just got hired, when just about any coach first gets hired, you know, they get hired in December. So they have a month and a half or, you know, maybe sometimes even just about a month, a little over a month to recruit. 
that first initial class. That that is all that recruiting right there is all on you are selling the future. You're selling excitement. You're selling upside. You're selling fantasy, right? I mean, none of those none of those recruits that you're recruiting at that point really know what your program's going to look like at all. So that's usually you know, a lot of people think that you know they don't coaches don't do well in that abbreviated uh, recruiting cycle, but most of the time they do. They come out of that pretty good. And then really what's key is that next recruiting cycle. And most coaches really understand we're going to probably struggle in this season. And before we even get to the season, we have from February until September to sell that upside, that fantasy of how we're going to be. And that's a huge opportunity. Um, and this staff, for whatever reason, just threw that opportunity out the window. Really just just completely squandered it. And, and then when the season kicked in, that compounded it all. So, I mean, you would have had a redoubled your efforts. What should have happened is they really were selling that fantasy for that for summer, spring and summer, which they kind of didn't enough. And then when the first, they went zero and five, right? Then you have to redouble your efforts to sell that fantasy. And none of that was done. And uh, that's where, that's where the hole was dug for the recruiting class. And then after that, they were scrambling the whole time. Now I'm not necessarily saying we have to really make this distinction a lot because Everyone uses that excuse. Well, look at Jim Mora. He got four or five star guys. And, and you know, what kind of production oh, that, did he get out of them? That drives me insane because unless you're making the argument that he lost because of those guys, that's a, it's a non-starter. Like, There's why, so many non-starter points. Why not both? Why not both? Why not have a lot yeah. of talent and also good coaching? Right. That's one, that's one point. Remember, Jim Mora won his first three years, okay? So you, you only got a 50% point if you even make it a, a valid point. Right. Um, and then we're not arguing, and here's the thing that makes it all moot. We're not even arguing about Chip Kelly's evaluation. No. You know, he could throw out every five-star, I don't care, and find two stars that he thinks are better than those five stars. Great. We're with you. I'm, I'm so on board with improving the quality of evaluation, but you need to recruit those guys hard, really hard. It's all about your recruiting effort and staying on them and then getting backup options or like with Puka Nakua, the wide receiver that was committed to USC. That's a guy who they should have stayed on. They stayed on Kyle Ford and Brew McCoy at wide receiver which, you know, if you just call up Greg Biggins and ask him, he'd go, well, no, you know, I will never say never, but they probably don't have a chance at all. Well, and even but with, with Puka with, Nakua, he was a guy that had established a relationship with UCLA. He was an L.A. type of guy. And you could have for you could have completely foresaw foreseen foreseen <laughs> that SC was going to crash and you would be there to scoop him up and you would have created eight months worth of a backstory of recruiting him rather than like eight weeks maybe, or not even that when they started to recruit him again. I, it, there's so many things that could have been done and it, and it wasn't. And it, it's, it's a squandered, it's a squandered opportunity, even at three and nine. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's, I thought your review was great, comprehensive. Um, everyone should go and read it, but it, it's, it's just a, it's such a comprehensive fail that even like kind of capturing all of it in e even a single anecdote is possible, but it's a little bit difficult because starting with, it's just an issue of planning. Um, how many guys do you need to take? Uh, well, take your number of open, open scholarships that you think you're going to have available for that year and probably add 10. That's probably a good guesstimate as to how many you're going to need to take. Um, 
you know, at any specific position group, how many open scholarships do you have for that cycle? I'll probably add one or two to that. Just, you know, you never know what's going to happen. But in any given year for any, you're exactly right. For any given year, for any program, you say we have 18 open now, and this is March. We're, by the time we get to September, or by the time we get to fall camp, you can easily, like just any conventional, pro, any regular program out there with a coach that's been operating for years, you can conservatively throw in four more guys. Conservatively. Yeah. The way UCLA was shedding guys, conservatively, you'd throw in six more, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They cool. got to, th- the, right now, there are a few guys, you know, I'm not going to say it. There are a few guys, well, we've seen everyone who has left. There's still a couple of guys that I think, are leaving. But it's at 63 right now after next year. Like after the seniors that are coming up this year, they're going to yeah. have 63 on scholarship. So it'll be 22 left. You're thinking there's going to be at least a two, two more this, probably this period that we're not going to name, but at least a couple more. And then uh, it's probably going to be another five or six. Like it just will, because that's what happens. Guys transfer out, especially with the transfer portal. So recruit as if you need 30. Like, that's how I'd be approaching 2020 right now. Yeah. Yeah, I think right now with, like I wrote there, I'm not going to say why that, uh, you can count up to about 30 right now. And I said there were 32 available. Um, Right now, let's say they get a couple of transfers, um, you know, great. But yeah, at the the least amount, you're going to have you still had 10 available, right? At least that you could have gotten. Now you're going to have a class in 2020, which you need a load up. I mean, they need, they need right now, the conventional thing for offensive line, this is the measuring stick. And I think Chip Kelly said this one time when I asked him in an interview, how many scholarship players you need at offensive line? He said 15. I think right now they have 11 or 12 going into maybe maybe 11 or 12. Um, some guys might leave. Some Now, see, here, this is where there's experience that comes in, knowing how to manage personnel. You've got to always discount in while they might have 12. Just think you're going to lose not even a graduation, but you're going to lose two or three. So you're down now to, let's say, nine. You want to get a 15. You still always got to give out. Uh, have to bring in five or six offensive linemen in 2020. And if you're going to bring in five or six, proportionally, you're probably going to have to offer 25 to 30. Yeah. (laughs) That's just basic stuff. That's basic, you know, roster management that seemed to be missed. And it was, it was, it was very perplexing. That that went missed. Yeah. That's the only way I can say it. It was perplexing. Super perplexing. Um, and I don't – so that's that's the planning perspective where it just – it seemed like they didn't really have a firm understanding. And I think maybe part of it is uh, the head coach most recently being in the NFL, um, a lot of the staff either being in the NFL or not necessarily being at a high major program that has maybe a significant, I don't know what Colorado State's uh, attrition is, but maybe some level of not really understanding the attrition at a higher major program where these guys are highly rated recruits who might want to transfer out if they're not going to get immediate playing time. Like just not understanding the new transfer portal and the new transfer rules and how, and not anticipating what that would do. No, no projection. And look, it's, that's a different, that's a different world. So I get that. I think everyone is kind of adjusting on the fly to that, but the rest of it was, well, if you had some experienced, like some really experienced college guys on staff um, and who had kept, and you know, obviously we, uh, Angus McClure was, was, uh, was a, a good assistant coach for a long time who kind of knew the ins and outs of the recruiting cycle, but like just having somebody who knew a little bit of the infrastructure um, around. And I don't know that there was anybody doing that. Um, But that was, that's, that's kind of the planning piece. Um, And then 
leave aside all of the evaluation stuff, like all of the evaluating whether these guys can play or not. I don't think either of us is really wading into that. I would, no. I would suggest that um, uh, recruiting rankings don't need to be poo-pooed quite as much as Chip Kelly appears to be doing it and others appear to be doing it because they've been borne out time and time again that they are on the very broad scale accurate and good at predicting talent and where it will go in the NFL and or in college and then the NFL and beyond. Um, but even leaving that aside, um, evaluating chances, evaluating how likely you are to get somebody um, was a huge miss this cycle. Um, spending yeah. any amount of effort on Drew McCoy, as you touched on, but just thinking you're doing well enough with guys or thinking you can pivot late to guys who you haven't kept warm, um, just a huge miss. And, and, you know, when it comes to, like, Brew McCoy, you know, maybe Chip Kelly, he's new to the whole UCLA-USC dynamic. And plus he thinks, I'm Chip Kelly, he'll want to come play for me. I, I get all that new to that. But just to recruit Brew McCoy and Kyle Ford for, like, four months, <laughs> five months, and, and just ex- – I, I don't – yeah, go after Brew McCoy, but have all those other guys that maybe you've offered or, you're, or you have as backup plans, too that were never touched, you know, that were never recruited. Uh, the thing that I, I'm, I touched on in that piece. And I think I can't even remember the two pieces are running together. Um, cause I, I'm pretty much done with the second part, but coaches are just eternally optimistic people in life as most of them are ex athletes, ex athletes have to be really confident and they have to, uh, you know, just be optimistic. We're going to win today. We're going to do this. Not base some, you know, there's a basis for it in fact, like we're good, but there's also a big leap of faith. You know, that's what they do. That's, that's how they have to be. That has to be their mental mindset. If they went around just being <laughs> pure realist all the time, they wouldn't be able to play. And then that mentality becomes a coach. And a lot of times that doesn't lend itself to effective coaching or really specifically effective self-scouting when it comes to how good your players currently on the, uh, you know, on the team are, um, how good one player is compared to another. You've got a bias towards this one guy and it's keeping the other guy on the bench just, and, and then you lend it to recruiting then it gets really bad because coaches can't this is my long time experience of dealing with so many coaches and so many assistant coaches, even the best recruiting coaches are eternally optimistic about how they're doing with guys. It's, it's, uh, it's just, it's, I can't even put it into words. It's so funny how, how deluded they can be. And it's not even in a bad way. It's almost in a, it's almost in a charming way. I don't really even think they're lying. I, they really believe it because if you really think about it, the feedback they're getting is coming from the player, his family, his high school coach, maybe a seven on seven in basketball, his AAU coach. And they, all those people are in the business of telling this coach how much they love them. So they keep recruiting him and he gets official visits and he gets this and and every other benefit he could possibly get, and I'll just leave it right there. Um, well, and that's why it's so important to take every bit of information you can about any kid's recruitment. Like, glean as much information from as many different sources as possible. If that you're a coach. doesn't, coaches don't do that a lot. <clears throat> they don't. They don't like to do that. And there's a there's a real psychology to that. I, I think. A lot of times they like to believe they're doing really well, and then they'll recruit one guy really hard, Brew McCoy, for instance, and and convince themselves they're doing really well with someone like that, it, just because that's easier than having their hopes dashed and having to, to move on. There's there's so much to it. it it's really an interesting like psychology. Um, I don't I have I don't know if there's really anything else in life that's comparable, that's a good metaphor for it. I, I can't think of anything, but 
Well, it, it's, an, it's it's a it's the interesting thing is um, there's a lot of built-in flaws in the coaching profession that don't get solved ever because it's a really insular profession. Um, yes. Only ex-players really ever get hired for these positions, so you have this built-in psyche that's in ex-players that then gets translated to coaching that isn't actually well suited for a lot of what goes into being a college coach. Um, it isn't yes. like you don't want to have that super like optimistic attitude when you're dealing with kids who are maybe not like trying to, but are effectively literally lying to your face a lot of the time. Um, because that's just the name of the game. Um, you need to have a good sense of things. You need to have a pretty analytical attitude about it. You need to understand that not everything that's said to you is going to be the honest truth. And how do you sift through all that information? Um, and that's, that's a huge part of the job. It's not like that's a tangential piece that knowing who, knowing who you have a chance with, I think is what separates a lot of the quote unquote good recruiting head coaches from the not so good ones. Um, not, and not even head coaches, but just a lot of the good recruiting coaches from the bad ones, because you'll have a really charismatic, um, recruiting coach who doesn't really, you know, doesn't necessarily know where guys are going. And yeah, he's great at getting guys interested, but then he spends too much time on the wrong guys. But I think we've seen good assistants in the past who have, there are those ones who have a more realistic sense, you know, and they're not, I think, common because as you touched on a lot of ex-players, they have that super optimistic attitude, but um, the ones who have been a little bit more, I don't know, more cynical about life in the past, I, I've noticed that they have, you know, maybe a but little bit more rational assessment of their chances with guys. I'm telling you though, Dave, that's really, it's unusual. It's uncommon. And yeah, even sure. some of the, and even some of the coaches that, for whatever reason, have developed over the course of a lot of years coaching and recruiting some kind of objectivity somehow or have a whole process of how they gather information, uh, objective, you know, independent information, let's say. I swear they can fall. All they need is one recruiting cycle where at their position they happen to get a couple of guys that were long shots they'll fall right back into that crutch of now believing that they can get <laughs> you know, of diluting themselves the next in the next cycle that they can stretch and get these other guys yeah. that we're looking at it and going, yeah, no, you have no, no chance. We know this. We talked to the seven on seven coach and he said, no, he's sewn up for this other school, you know, and it, it, seriously, they can fall right back into it. That optimism is like a drug, you know, it's, it's a, someone needs to write a book. Yeah. We need a PhD out there who can write a book. Yeah. We really do. We really do. Um, okay. Well, I, I, you're, we're writing so much stuff about 2019. We've now talked about it for a little bit. Let's turn our attention a little bit more optimistically, Tracy, to 2020. Can we, <laughs> can we talk a little bit about what, if anything, we think is changing um, and how this is not going to be repeated next year? Um, there are some signs, uh, I'd say there's some baby steps. <laughs> uh, there were some changes made on, uh, the, well, there was one change made on the assistant coaching staff and there were some changes made on the recruiting staff. Um, uh, Roy Manning moved on to, to Oklahoma. I, uh, you know, um, it's, I'm just struggling because, you know, you don't want necessarily – the way this could come off is that we blame Roy Manning, but there is no way we blame Roy Manning for what happened at UCLA during this recruiting cycle. But he, he might have failed at recruiting at UCLA also, and that was just like one piece of it. Um, the fact that he moved on to Oklahoma I think was maybe mutually determined is probably a good way of putting that. Um, I know we said that Roy Manning was a good recruiter when he was coming in and it was based on um, some information that, you know, we had received on how Roy had done at Washington state. Who's replacing him is a guy named Jason Kafusi who comes from uh, Nevada. And I have it on more reliable authority that he is, a, he is legitimately a very good recruiter. 
So I think they upgraded in terms of their staff when it comes to recruiting. And it, it's really interesting, too, because so much of being a good recruiting staff is literally you have 10 assistants and you just literally check the box. Good recruiter, good recruiter, good recruiter. And if you got eight out of 10 who are good, you're, you're you know, you're gold. If you've got six, still pretty good. You know, but if you're down around that 30 percentile, yeah, that's not bad. You know, that's not good. So just getting Kafusi turns it around to where I think I can confidently put him in the column of good recruiter. Um, and that really helps one more on the staff because not just what he does individually, but the if he is a good recruiter, what he creates within the staff on recruiting, the energy, the I'm going to keep recruiting no matter what. I'm, you know, and and if the guy, you know, has enough personal gravitas to turn to his to turn to another coach on the staff and say what the heck are you making your calls or not you know what are you doing here because there's a lot of overlap in recruiting like you know there's an outside linebacker who's not in let's say Kafusi's region and someone else is recruiting him who has him in his recruiting area and so it's a team effort so a lot of times a coach will turn him when's the last time you like dm this kid when's the last time you called him i mean so it affects it. one improvement on the staff can really affect the staff. So I think that's an improvement. Then there was the changes in uh, the recruiting staff. Uh, he ran, uh, I shouldn't say he ran off. Um, <laughs> Chip Kelly replaced a few guys. There were at least three people who have moved on since. There's a little bit of a restructure going on. Um, We'll have to see how this works out with how he's structuring it. I think, uh, and this is, I know this, <laughs> this is in the second piece that will come out tomorrow, the second part. Um, he's, Chip Kelly's restructuring things a little bit differently than what most staffs do. Most staffs have one coach who is also a recruiting coordinator. More and more staffs are kind of getting away from that, but... And I think that dynamic works well because you need a coach who is your peer to turn to you and say, you know, uh, WTF, have you made your calls? Right. You know, as opposed to a 20-something uh, director or player personnel is going to turn to some old, irascible, you know, intimidating coach and say, hey, are you making your calls? You know, that's just not going to happen. So – I like having a recruiting coordinator who's on the actual coaching staff. Um, but he's doing it differently. He's not going to do that. Uh, but I think the changes are positive. I think Chip Kelly recognized that there was some dysfunction in there. Um, and I think the people that he's uh, hired now might have more of a chance of be able to run and manage the recruiting effort better than what was in place last year. Yeah, I'm going to, and I think last year we gave, I mean, I think we were, we were talking not, not right now last year, but probably two months from now we were like, Oh, they're doing some interesting and weird and potentially bad things on recruiting. <laughs> uh, let's see, let, you know, we'll wait and see through June and then through August what's going on. Um, and then we started to, you know, really start to, uh, ring the alarm a little bit starting in, uh, I think August and September. Um, this year, I'm not going to, I'm not going to wait that long. Um, I think. <laughs> so you are, have like a, a short, uh, higher expectations or yeah, a shorter, well, or shorter the, honeymoon. This one was such a process fail. Um, you can, you can assess process, um, in, in, in transit. Like you can assess. You don't need to see the result to assess process. Um, and if they're doing the same stuff, um, which, look, I mean, yeah, we can say the recruiting staff, we can say Roy Manning to a certain extent, but it takes a village and it takes a village <laughs> leader to uh, screw up recruiting this bad um, at UCLA. At Minnesota, not so much. You can have the 45th ranked recruiting class and missed on most of your first targets, and that's maybe normal. Um at, at UCLA, it's just, it's not. And so that does take, that takes a lot. That takes a, a 
that takes amount that takes some direction or some lack thereof that I think needs to be filled by the head coach um, because they're not going to have a recruiting coordinator. But even then, a recruiting coordinator isn't what solves your problems. I mean, I don't think this was an internal logistics thing. I think this is a top-down fail. So what's going to change? What what will have to change? I think is the the way uh, Chip Kelly directs recruiting, the way he prioritizes it, and how that trickles down to the rest of the staff. Um, if it's a priority, and we hear a lot of kids saying, "Yeah, I heard from Chip Kelly," or "Yeah, I'm hearing from this assistant coach all the time in April or May," then we can say, "Okay, yeah, there's a real process difference here." Feeling more optimistic, but if we're hearing the same stuff, like, "Oh yeah, uh, UCLA offered me," um, I haven't heard as much from them, but I'm hearing a lot from Washington, and I'm hearing a lot from Oregon. Well, it's the same deal. It's the same deal, new faces. Um, and that'll... The first step, you're right. You're, and I just want to say it while I remember it. You're exactly right. And we've started to see a little bit of a difference. We've seen more offers that have gone out to 20, 2020 kids. I think we'll see a lot more kids being offered, too. But the point you just made, what they did in the last cycle is they offered some kids, and not that many, but they still offered them. Then they kind of didn't recruit them. Oh, yeah. It was like they thought just an offer for Chip Kelly at UCLA should be enough for a while. Um, so there, that's two-pronged. More offers, and then they immediately keep recruiting them from uh, – the time to really watch is going to be the May contact period where they go out, they see a bunch of kids, remember, and then there's a big uh, blow-up of offers – and then when they stop seeing them, they don't offer that much. So by the end of the May evaluation period through August, through late August, September, when they can go out to the first high school games, after they make all those offers after May, how they recruit that period right there. I mean, do they go on, you know, uh, <laughs> essentially vacation on recruiting or do they keep on them through that period? That's what didn't happen last year. That will be key. And you're right. If we hear recruits say, well, I haven't heard they offered me, but I didn't hear that much, that'll be a sign. Yeah. And then uh, official visits, uh, we have to, you, you know, you can start officially visiting in April. Um, UCLA didn't last year. Uh, they need to get on top of that maybe and get some official visits of some guys that maybe they could get early. Um but yeah, like also quarterback <laughs> and also the nature of the official visit. Uh, I mean, we've seen that change a little bit from the early signing period to national to in the, just that two months of remember they wouldn't chip Kelly didn't want a recruit and his family to leave campus. Uh, they were eating at the player's training table. Um, we had actually heard too, that the initial feeling was that chip wanted them only to take a 24 hour official visit, just, just only they would just get the informational stuff. So basically cutting out any fun <laughs> possible. Um, so from that point to where he is now taking Puka Nakua to Craig's, you know, having the party at Rocco's, there's a loosening up here. And so there's that element too of Chip Kelly in his mind, the way he works, he, he doesn't under, he probably doesn't see that value as much as, as other people. He's just in his, it's a black and white data driven world. And he might not understand that. And he's also sending a message that I want kids who are very serious minded, but there's a balance there. And I write that in this thing I'm going to release tomorrow that there has to be a balance of, yeah, finding the right kid, but also knowing that he, you know, UCLA is a nice place to be. So We've seen a little bit of that. That's changed a little. And I, the UCLA official visit used to be, I think, one of the best in the country. Kids, oh. would, rave, kids would rave about it. And now in this cycle, even after early Sunday, even for Jordan Wilmore and uh, Drew Fowler, they both said their Utah visit was more fun than the UCLA visit. And there's no way a visit to Salt Lake City. Sorry, I really respect the Utah program and their evaluations and their recruiting, given what they've done and what they have to work with. 
But there's no way a kid should have more fun in Salt Lake City than Los Angeles. Well, and, Just, I, 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 and I, I, I like that they're expanding things a little bit more. But even there, I have like a little bit of a process disconnect because these are 17-year-old and 18-year-old football players. Like, do they really want to – I mean, I've never been to Craig's. I've looked at pictures online. It looks like a modern, you know, upscale dining place. Go to Fogo de Chao again. Get them all you can eat Brazilian beef. That's what these kids want. They, they love that. They Recruits want that experience. Love that Go thing. do that. Yeah. Don't do the stuff that like a wealthy 38-year-old wants to do. Like <laughs> I, I that's the kind of stuff where it's like, where's the where's the like actual thinking, okay, if I'm an 18-year-old kid coming to LA, what would I want to do? Like, and it doesn't have to be everything that you'd want to do, but like what would be cool? Oh, going to the Rose Bowl, that's cool. Doing the whole locker room photo shoot at the Rose Bowl was really cool. Everybody always talked about that. And that's seeing, not seeing party. the Pacific Ocean, maybe. Yeah. Go do that with the kids from the Midwest. Um, yeah. go to a place where they can eat all you can eat meat. They will love that. But like I don't know. And you're and, and there's that argument, Dave, where well, you're misrepresenting the experience at UCLA. And that's absolutely not true. Because a kid a player will spend his time, a lot of time on Spalding Field, a lot of time in Wasserman. He'll go to class, but they spend a lot of time in Westwood and a lot of time in Los Angeles. And I hate to break it to y'all because if you don't know this, I, you didn't go there or you're just putting your head in the sand. There's a whole big social life out there of UCLA students and UCLA football players in West Los Angeles. They enjoy West Los Angeles, and I'm not saying they're going to drugged-out Hollywood parties, but there are things to enjoy in Los Angeles well, that is a good social life, and UCLA has the benefit of probably one of the most – you can show a kid some of the most impressive things where he will be living and moving through life among. I mean, when – I hate to say it, people will probably call me out on this, but Jim Mora used to work at the NFL Network. He used to, a lot of these kids come in, they're coming to Los, uh, UCLA and Los Angeles because they, they think they might want to be in broadcasting when they get out of football. Yeah. The NFL Network's, I don't know if it's still there, but it used to be the offices were in Westwood. He took Miles Jack to that office and showed it to him because Miles Jack thought he wanted to be in broadcasting. I mean... Showing them that this is where you could be working. This is what you, they watch the NFL network probably all day long. And then they show them those studios. That's not, that's what you should be doing. You're showing the recruit, the benefit of going to UCLA. Uh, it's just, it's almost intentionally, I don't know. It's a weird mentality not to take advantage of that. Well, it's, it's recruiting as if the school is in Minnesota. It's recruiting as if they are recruiting to the University of Minnesota. Like, that's what this yeah. is. It's not – and it's – I think it's just – it's it's more of a misrepresentation than the opposite. Like, it's just – it's so – That's goofy. it. You just nailed it. That's it. it it's, it's not even capturing UCLA – mildly it's misrepresenting UCLA. if you're talking about misrepresenting their experience this misrepresents their experience because believe me they do have hours outside of Wasserman and Spalding and a classroom well they they have mandated hours outside of Wasserman and Spalding and the classroom yeah. like this is yeah. college athletics it's not yeah. the NFL you cannot have these kids just Committed to football 100% of the time every single day. That's just not the reality of the situation. That's not college coaching. That's not college athletics. The, yeah. the, the, uh, it's so, it's, it's just, it's so silly. It's just, uh, and, and built in, it's like built in, it, it builds in failure. Like, because even a kid who is serious minded and the, the relative serious mindedness of an 18 year old, like, Nobody is serious-minded at 18. Sean Ryan is the rarest of rare people. Um, but nobody is. But there's relatively serious-minded kids. Like, hey, Josh Rosen had some maturing to do, but a relatively serious-minded kid. He still wanted to take official visits to other schools, even after he knew he was going to UCLA, because he wanted to, you know, go hang out, 
see some new places, hang out with some new people, do the whole thing. That's you're not, not going to find. That's not a character not, flaw. Yeah, you're not going to find 85 Sean Ryan. Every, no, you, know, you find one you're not going to find 25 years. a year. There's yeah. just no way. Yeah, uh, it's just it's it's goofy. Um, what then, thing? What what could help though? And it's just a matter of random timing. We do know we that transfers might. Uh, Chip Kelly might appeal more to transfers. Most transfers have spent their time somewhere. Um, they're not seventeen-year-olds. They want it. They don't really care anymore about being shown love. They're all. They're more all business. They want to be told. They want to find out what they can. What kind of training they're going to get? What kind of coaching? What kind of player development that's going to get them to the league? That's how Chip Kelly is. Chip Kelly's program is geared. Yeah. Um, I guess my, my thought on that is um, we'll, we'll see how this plays out. Maybe it is that a school, a particular school, can pick out eight or ten guys on the transfer portal. Maybe that does happen. But yeah. I that's a Band-Aid solution for me. Yeah. I don't think eight or ten. I think maybe two or three. And and I think even though you think it's a Band-Aid, I think the, the theory that it's a Band-Aid solution is based on our old impression of college sure. football, it's now new. This is a free agency now. I, I mean, everyone has to be involved in this. There are now over 2,000 football players, Division I football players, in the portal. I don't even know how that's possible. But there are 2,000 of them now in the portal. If you ask <laughs> me how many Division I football players there were, I'd probably say, like, I don't know, 3,000. Um, okay so two-thirds are um yeah and i i see that um but i i still don't it's any strategy that's going to rely on any recruiting strategy that's going to rely on 18 year olds or people being as mature as 21 or 22 year olds when the vast majority of your class is going to be made up I think, again, unless this transfer portal ends up being a thing where you're taking 8, 10, 15 guys, 25 guys a cycle, uh, you're going to have to make this appeal more to 18-year-olds. You just do. Um, and it sounds like they're making some strides, some baby steps. Uh, I think you need to pick, make some long strides. Maybe call up some coaches who coached UCLA in the past and ask them what they did on their officials because it sounds like they don't really have much of an idea. Um, so, Just one more thing I want to touch on on – on transfers, I think a key here moving forward, I, I think there is going to be a lot, obviously we're seeing it, there's going to be a lot more transfers moving between schools. Uh, it's going to be a way, unless they change the new NSA rules, it's going to be a way of life. Um, I, I only see it loosening up more, even. I think there might be more legislation to, uh, on the whole sitting out thing. I think that might get reduced. There might be other other parameters that allow someone to not have to sit out based on some factors. Um, I think the key for UCLA, as we, as we know, the toughest thing for UCLA in grad transfers is, is UCLA's grad programs are so difficult to get admitted into. I think that's a key. <laughs> if Chip Kelly is working on something internally right now that could really help him, especially short-term right now to help him get some talent in that could really help him win over the next couple of years in those building block seasons, it would be finding grad programs where he could get grad transfers in. I'm, um, I, I, I was about ready to make a scoffing noise because if, you, <laughs> if, if UCLA coaches in the past have had trouble with undergraduate admissions, mm, good, luck, good luck getting serious grad programs that have PhDs you know, trying desperately to get their grant money or whatever, then being persuaded to take some, you know, possibly well, there underperforming are, there are, athlete as, as their as their charge. Yeah, there, there are programs like the education program. It was like it's a one year program to my knowledge. It's like what uh, Justin Murphy did. There are if you have like a multi year grad transfer, from what I've heard, there's like a teaching grad program, which is a two year thing. I, I don't mean loosening up getting people in Anderson school. <laughs> right. 
Remember that offensive lineman a few years ago who actually great. thought he could get in? And not only that he could get in, and I'm sorry, I'm not laughing at him, but just that that he thought he could be in the Anderson School to get that in and play football, which is absolutely impossible. Um, but there might be more programs like that that could be created out of many departments at UCLA and the departments can create them on their own. That might make it more conducive for grad transfers. Yeah, that's true. Uh, what do you think, real quick, what do you think of this eight-clap eighth thing? Um, I'm not – I'm really skeptical about it. I understand they're doing it as a marketing ploy to get, like what Chip Kelly said yesterday, well, you're talking about it, aren't you? Well, no, we just asked you the question. <laughs> well, and uh, my, my thing but, on it is I don't – what what – why does UCLA need branding? I mean, UCLA is a top 15 recruiting power historically. You don't need branding. And then what happens if, you know, some kid, there's a, some kid comes to campus on the ninth and he's, <laughs> and they want to offer him, I guess they just offer him, you know, it just might be a whole marketing ploy. They could still offer the kid and then say, hey, don't release it until the eighth of the next month. I, I think that's what's going to happen. It's yeah. going to have to happen. I, I mean, if some kid visits, visits and they love him and he's exactly what they want, they go, hey, you know, we got to wait until we got to wait 28 days until the eighth to offer you. Uh, I think they're going to say, hey, you're offered, but just don't, you know, make it public until the eighth, I think. I, and I think some kids will probably leak it out because they're not going to pay attention to that. I, I don't know. It just it doesn't seem doesn't seem like it's worth it to me. No, and if they actually if what he's saying is true, and they actually are only offering guys on the eighth, that's insane. Like, <laughs> that is so self defeating for like such little gain that I. I, I want to say it just can't be true, but I also thought it would have it would have not been possible to be true that UCLA would just go an entire football season without really recruiting anyone, and that happened. So, yeah. Let's... I think what's happening here a lot is that if you look at it from this perspective, a lot of the things that Chip Kelly has instituted as policy or marketing or gimmick, if you look at it, let's say UCLA just won the Pac-12 championship. And they did this. It would make more sense that if they did a golden ticket, like they didn't offer a lot of guys, it makes more sense, right? If you offer some guy and then you kind of don't hear from him, you don't hear from the school for a while, the recruit, but they just, that was a team that just won the Pac-12 championship. You can almost understand it more. It's like a lot of the things they're doing is like they have that, they, they're, they're coming from a standpoint like they went 11 and <laughs> 11 and one last year. <laughs> that's the most, that's the craziest thing to me. Like you had to have some kind of self-awareness that you, you went first, you went three and nine. And secondly, UCLA, your chip Kelly is out at UCLA and you've got to establish that this is a good program to be. You can't, all these kids aren't just naturally assuming Hey, I better jump on now because they're going to win the Pac-12 championship and be in the college football playoff in two years. Kids don't aren't thinking that. So again, self-scouting, self-awareness. But if you look at it from that standpoint that a lot of the things they did, it's almost like they have so much self-confidence in themselves like they won the Pac-12 championship and that the program has that kind of value, which it doesn't right now. Yeah. It's that That's kind of interesting. That I think... You look at it from that standpoint, you can kind of see where they're coming from, even though us sitting out here don't don't understand why. But yeah. Yeah. It's it's great. Um let's talk about basketball, Dave. Oh. <laughs> this but this is the thing with basketball, is like we're just we're literally just like Leaning on our hand, toe tapping until this thing's over. At this point, right? Like we're doing what? What'd you say? We are toe tapping, just yeah. impatiently waiting oh, until this yeah. season is over, because yeah. it's over. Like it's done. I mean, they're not going anywhere, and they're they're now 
they're now looking worse than they did in December uh, when Alford was fired. Um, like that that Colorado game was, who boy, <laughs> effort yeah. effort not there. Just they, they look like they're playing out the string, um, and uh, we're all just in wait and see now. And it's you know <laughs> that's where I want to talk about. I want to talk about one thing when it comes to the coaching search. I kind of addressed it on that forum. There is a mentality, and I think I've written about it enough, and I've tried so hard to dispel this. You know, people just say, we need an elite coach or nothing. Tony Bennett or bust. And when you start to break it down and you look at the people who are actually available out there, there is no Hall of Fame coach that's going to come to UCLA. You know, it's just, it's not going to happen. Coach K's not coming. Roy Williams isn't coming. You know, they're, they're, they're not going to come. Brad Stevens isn't going to leave <laughs> the Celtics. Billy Donovan right now, you know, it, unless he gets fired from the Thunder, he's not leaving there. Um, so, and Tony Bennett is clearly, it's, it's so funny because I'm about to say he's clearly the elite coach, but there's still a small little fraction of the fans who don't want Tony Bennett too, that... <laughs> I mean, I, that, that's just insanity to me. But just the Tony Bennett or bust or the elite coach or bust is so unnerving to me because it just – I know you can say that, but just sit down for 10 minutes and look at college basketball and the coaches who are available out there, the reality of it, and it, you can't say that. Of course you can try for Tony Bennett and maybe Jamie Dixon, but then you're going to go to a secondary list and I, I'm very confident there are at least 10 more coaches who I have on that coach's hot board that would come to UCLA and have a great chance of being successful. And it, you, UCLA would then be in the business in their search if they can't get Tony Bennett or, let's say, Jamie Dixon. Uh, I'll probably get criticized because people say he's not elite. Um but they'll be in the business of trying to find that next elite coach. That's what you do. I mean, when Coach K was hired at Duke, he wasn't elite, right? When it's, yeah, it's 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 baffling nonsense. Like it's pure nonsense. Because <laughs> I'm glad you said that. Look, who was elite when they got hired at another elite place? Like Roy Williams, I guess he he won big at Kansas and then he won big at North Carolina, but not Coach K. Um, it's just, it's, everybody starts somewhere. Um, now if you're hiring somebody like a Mike Bray, then suddenly I'm like, okay, I kind of get what you're saying because he's been at a, you know, a pretty good historically basketball program in Notre Dame and has been just fine. I, I don't, I wouldn't anticipate him getting UCLA elite. That's my personal opinion, but there's a lot of guys where you look at it and you project a little bit. Um, I think Jamie Dixon is one. Because he's been at Pittsburgh and TCU. These are not historically huge basketball programs, and he's done pretty damn well. Um, you project him at UCLA, and suddenly you're like, okay, UCLA will be, I think, conservatively, perennially top 15, and they'll get a top seed pretty much every year, and they'll be really good. Okay, great. That sounds great. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a host of guys you can say that about, where you just have to project them a little. And I know people are poo-pooing Kevin Keats now because he's lost a couple of games and they scored like 24 points the other night. And maybe he's not the guy. But I think, again, you project him and you're like, okay, yeah, he could win. And I, did you watch that 24-point game? I didn't. It was uncanny. Like, they they shot like 2 of 28 from 3. It was insane. Right. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think there's there's probably, as you said, 10 guys on your list alone where you can say – okay, will UCLA be consistently like top 15, probably get like a top three seed every single year? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Then great. Let's hire them. And, and let me say this too. <coughs> there are, there are, you okay? Yeah. <laughs> there are plenty of instances out there where an elite coach or a, you know, a, a well-respected coach gets that, gets another job, gets that job that's going to pay him a lot of money in a nice area, Southern California, he's going to get a house in Manhattan Beach, whatever. And that elite, there's just as good a chance as that elite coach comes to UCLA and coasts 
because he's cashing in lifestyle later in life. He's kind of fat and happy, right? Compared to the more unproven coach who's hungry and wants to win at a high level. There's just as much chance that that unproven hungry guy wins at UCLA than the proven coach who wants to coast. Easily. Easily. So, I mean, I just, I wish I could put something on the forum that as soon as someone says something like that, it just, you know, just instantly deletes it. <laughs> yeah, or creates a bot that auto-responds to it. Just something. Like, just yeah. something to deal with it so you don't have to. I like I like the bot. It just has a, a, some kind of go-to little template that, yeah. Yeah, we need to get bots installed on 247. I think that's the next step. But I, I think I think UCLA basketball fans should be encouraged by what we're seeing from, even though a lot of you know there hasn't been that much news. But I, I mean, I, I'm I, you know I'm working hard to try to get news about who the who the candidates are, and I think I think our hot board is like the number one source of that easily. Um, but I think you can come away thinking that, you know that you're relatively satisfied with how it's going, Bob Myers, you know, having him, you know, being part of the committee that's looking, I mean, just, just think about this. Bob Myers is a guy who put together the golden state warriors. If Bob Myers calls you up and is asking about your interest in UCLA and in any way, uh, just know that inherently all most college basketball coaches want to get to the NBA. They, they, they just have, either they really want to, or they have it in the back of their mind. So you don't want to say something or be disingenuous or do something that's going to piss off Bob Myers, because he's kind of the sentinel at the gate right now in getting you. He could really help you get a job in the NBA. He's such a good guy to be heading this up. And then you have all of this time where they can vet all of these Guys, now let's say they miss on Jamie, they miss on Tony Bennett, they miss on Jamie Dixon, they miss on just because of circumstances. I I think if they miss on guys, it's not going to be because of UCLA. Um, five, six, seven, eight, ten years ago, you could have picked it apart and said they have no practice facility, they don't have charter planes, they blah blah blah. I'm not getting taken care of, you know, rent, uh, housing. Prices are too high in West LA, on and on and on. Honestly, none of those things are now uh, uh, any kind of problem. More probably, I'd have to say more or less and a lot more that those aren't problems anymore. If someone turns down this job, it's going to be not because the job wasn't great, but it's because maybe the wife just says, you know, I don't want to live in Los Angeles. And that's going to happen, people. Not all 15 people on that hot board are going to want the UCLA job, but it's not for lack that the UCLA job isn't good. So, but it could happen. They move down the list. But I think I'm, you know, I haven't looked at it lately, but I think I'm 10, 10 coaches in that I think would come to UCLA and be good as opposed to what we just what UCLA recently had as its coach. Um, So everyone should take some so loss from that. I Um, agree. Yeah. That's, that's the thing that gets me. I, I, and you know what? I don't blame everyone. I mean, look at the hiring history here. Mm -hmm. Not, not batting at a high average when it comes to hiring history. Um, And even in basketball, the, the home run hire was Ben Hallen. He was the perfect guy. And we got five good years and then, whoa, what happened there? So, you know, looking back on it, I guess a lot of people won't even give that, uh, you know, a good hire. They won't consider that a good hire. When you look back at it, you have to judge it by the hire at the time. And that was a good hire. Yeah, so, and, and that's something I'll say um, just as like a preemptive hypothetical about the Chip Kelly thing, just moving into that for a second. Yeah. Uh, no matter how this ends up, no matter what failures or not happen in the next years or three years or four years or whatever, 
it was a good hire. It was a Absolutely. good process, great hire at the time. Whole thing done right. Sometimes, and we'll we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see how this goes. But no matter how it goes, it was a good hire. And I I don't want there to be revisionist history 10 years from now that's like, oh, that was a horrible process or whatever. No, it's a great hire. Right, right. Or they they should, let's say it it runs aground in five years. You know, the people who are doing the hiring should have seen this. If anyone says that, I'm just going to lose it. Because there's, (laughs) unless you're Nostradamus and, and, you know, you could have seen maybe there were some naysayers out there who watched the 49ers or something or the Eagles. I don't know, but whatever. Let's just say that everyone was most people were on the same page that that was an absolute hire that you had to make. Just like Ben Hallen, not just like, but Ben Hallen was an absolute hire had to make. So, but I just want to kind of preemptively say, you know, if, if in this hire, you know, UCLA gets down to, you know, maybe a guy who's we would think might be six, seven guys in, I think we're still good. You know, let's say Thad Mata. You know, that seems to piss off everyone. And I don't think Thad Mata's at the top of UCLA's list or even probably among the top five guys. But I believe Thad Mata, having watched him at Ohio State, knowing his reputation on the recruiting uh, trail, that he would be successful at UCLA. I'd, no, be, I'd, if, I'd if, be stunned if he weren't. If you eval him, and if you evaluate him and he still has some juice, because I think that was the thing, is that he just kind of lost the will to be doing it at the end yeah. because he had, some, yeah. he had some health problems, the whole thing. If he still has the juice, yeah. What the hell? I mean, those teams looked relatively well coached, and he could recruit. Fine, that's great. I think he'd be good. How about Tad Boyle from Colorado? I haven't heard his name mentioned, but let's say you miss seven guys. Tad Boyle would win at UCLA. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I, I think a good coach. Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't think that's going to eliminate it, but I'm trying. Today, yeah. I'm trying to eliminate that sentiment, but yeah, fighting the good fight, fighting the good fight. That's us. That's what we do. That's what we do here at Print Report Online. All right. Well, you got anything else? Uh, I have a lot, but I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm thinking about like out here in Thousand Oaks. There's this place called Badass Tacos. You all gotta. I'm gonna go have a few. You gotta come out and have it. It's they're so good. Dave, when you come out here, we gotta go. I'll come out to have it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, then, for Tracy Pearson, I'm David Woods, Bruin Report Online. Thank you for sticking with UCO Athletics and us. And us. Through, gosh, the driest time ever. Promise it'll be better someday soon. All right. We'll talk to you again next time. We'll see you all.